0: society 13 podcast network redefining podcasts do you like to listen the following episode is entirely listener-supported. We'd love to have you join us as an executive producer. You can do that for as little as a dollar a month. Everyone, regardless of whether you're giving us a dollar a month or a $100 a month, gets rewards. Join us in the HGB Losers Club here on Facebook, where we host drawings, live videos, and give you insider information. Get access to exclusive videos featuring cemeteries and haunted locations, and also access to bonus episodes. Executive producer, Producers at the five dollar and above level get two episodes of History Goes Bump every single week. One bonus, one free, and you get the entire archive of all bonus episodes. There's over a hundred at this time. For those giving at higher levels, you get HGB logo gear, mugs, and t-shirts. Head over to the website historygoesbump.com and click on the Support the Show tab. You can support us through Patreon or PayPal. Help us to keep History Goes Bump ad-free. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this two hundred and forty-third episode of the History Ghost Bump Podcast.
1: Ghost Tours for the Theater of the
0: Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. Denise, on this episode, we are doing a location that we have been to, both of us. And I love producing these episodes for that very reason, because it's actually a place where we have been hands-on, been around it, so we can describe it for ourselves, not what somebody else has written in a book or online or something of that nature. And as a matter of fact, you and I did a ghost tour that took us into this house Probably about five years ago? I think so. It was pretty early on in our adventures. And then a couple weeks ago, you had to go to Savannah to do some Taekwondoing. Yes, so it was horrible. I had to go to one of
1: my favorite cities and do something I hate.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Just kidding. So I made myself busy running around making videos for our executive producers, and I said, you know what? I'm going to go to the Sorrell Wheat House and do a tour. And that's what I did. So we are featuring the Sorrell Wheat House on this episode. This place has got so much history behind it, lots of legend and some haunting. And we're going to try to get to the bottom of the facts because there's a lot of untruth out there as well. Before we get into that, we want to welcome to the Spooktacular Crew Christina with a CH.
1: Hello, Christina with a CH. Holly with an IE. Hi, Holly with an IE. Andrew. Hey, Andrew. William. Hi, William. Joel. Hey, Joel. Craig. Hi, Craig. Michael. Hello, Michael. Stuart. Hey, Stuart. Annie. Hello, Annie. And Stephen. Hey, Stephen. And now, this moment in oddity.
0: The Black Hills area of South Dakota can experience a wide range of temperature variations, especially in the winter months. One reason for this are the warm Chinook winds that blow in over the Black Hills. The occurrence is so common that the Black Hills have been dubbed the Banana Belt of the Midwest. Inversions, which are warm air flowing over a shallow pool of cold air, cause temperature jumps as well since the Black Hills rise above the plains into a warm air layer. Even though these temperature changes are expected, no one expected what happened on January 22, 1943. Temperatures on that day rose and fell almost 50 degrees in only two minutes. During that January, Arctic air had blown down from the north, and temperatures in the Dakotas were falling into the way below zero range. On the morning of the 22nd, temperatures in a Black Hills town named Spearfish were sitting at minus 4 degrees Fahrenheit. This was recorded at 7.32 a.m. Two minutes later, the temperature was recorded as 45 degrees Fahrenheit, a rise in temperature of 49 degrees the temperature rose a few more degrees over the next two hours and then plummeted from 54 degrees back to minus 4 degrees in 27 minutes. This change was so quick and drastic that car windshields froze over with thick frost and plate glass windows cracked. This was so weird that it received national media coverage and was featured in Ripley's Believe It or Not and Strange As It Seems cartoons in the newspapers. A drastic change in temperature in just two minutes certainly is odd.
1: This history podcast is haunted.
0: And now, This Month in History.
1: In the month of February, on the 3rd in 1943, a very heroic moment in history took place involving the SS Dorchester. During World War II, the SS Dorchester, a U.S. Army transport ship, was hit by a German torpedo just off of the country of Greenland. Before the war, the Dorchester had been a luxury passenger liner built by the Newport News Shipbuilding and Dry Dock Company. It was launched in 1926 and featured electric fans and telephones in every room. She was refitted for the war in New York and made five successful crossings from New York City to Greenland. On February 3rd, she was only 100 miles from her destination when she was hit by the torpedo nearly an hour after midnight. She began to list immediately and it was clear that she was going to sink. There were not enough life jackets on board. Four Army chaplains, Catholic Father John P. Washington, Dutch Reformed Reverend Clark B. Poling, Rabbi Alexander D. Good and Methodist Reverend George L. Fox tried their best to keep the men calm as lifeboats were launched. The four chaplains gave up their life jackets to four frightened young soldiers. They had decided to go down with the ship and survivors reported seeing the four chaplains standing on the deck, arm in arm, praying together. They died along with the captain and 667 other men, making this the third worst loss of life at sea for the United States during the war. We have been inside the Sorrell Weed House twice, and while we have never had a paranormal experience in this house, there is definitely an energy inside this house. The house has been through many changes in its 175 plus years. After starting as an antebellum mansion to a wealthy slave owner named Francis Sorrell, it served as a store that found the outside of the house completely changed. Then it was apartments, and finally is a museum today, in much need of renovation. The house was witness to tragedy, and today is considered to be quite haunted, and has been featured by both ghost hunters and ghost adventurers. Join us as we take you through the history and hauntings of the Sorrel Weed House.
0: Savannah is the oldest city in the state of Georgia, and the city is truly charming with its layout of park like squares surrounded by antebellum homes decorated in black wrought iron. And I made a live Facebook video because I was driving down the road and I went, there's the 1790 Inn. And while I was doing that, I walked over to this antebellum home that had all of this gorgeous wrought iron around the balconies, and it had real gas lights, so it was real flames so cool. I just love walking around these squares. And the really nice thing about Savannah is that you literally could just walk all of the different squares. It's small enough that you can see all of the high points walking around the city. Now, we advise people to do a trolley tour just so that you can get the whole history from the tour guides that they have there. But then after that, you don't really need to be on the trolley. Like in St. Augustine, if you want to get all around everything, it's really easiest to be on the trolley and take it to all of the different points of interest that you want to try to hit and get off and on and do that kind of thing. But here in Savannah, you can walk it just fine.
1: I love the squares, like you said, Diane, as well. But if you do get to Savannah, be sure to go down to the Riverwalk as well.
0: Oh, we can't forget that because that's where all the stores are. Actually, the Riverwalk is very cool. There's a riverboat that's down there. Lots of great stuff. And there's a candy shop that has every kind of candy you could ever want. So, So Like the old-fashioned candy and there's the
1: waving lady.
0: Yes, there's a statue of the waving girl. One of the squares here is Madison Square. The Grand DeSoto Hotel once stood along this square, but now it's been replaced with the DeSoto Hilton. Doesn't look historic. It looks just like a regular hotel. Of course, it is a Hilton, but at least they kept the historic name. Now, if you Google the DeSoto Hotel, you will see it was a gorgeous hotel. I am so sad that it eventually was raised. On the western edge of the square, there's the Green Meldrum House, this is a Gothic revival structure. It was built back in 1853, and it serves as St. John's Episcopal Church's parish house and rectory. And then there's also the Eliza Jewett house here on the square built in 1842. It stands across the square from the Sorrel Weed House. As listeners can hear, these squares just ooze history, and every one of them has these historic homes all around it. I like that
1: you w- use the word ooze because it also oozes ghost.
0: <laughs> that is true. It's one of its claims to fame, is most of you probably already know, claims to be one of the most haunted cities in all of America. Which is pretty much
1: every neat old
0: city we go to, right? That is true. And I do have to say, for all the times that we've been in Savannah, never have had a paranormal experience. So I don't know if it holds up to the hype, but it is definitely holds up to the hype of being historic and beautiful. And great food. And great food, yes. And great shopping. Well, whatever. Okay.
1: The land where the mansion stands today was once the location of a British barracks during the second bloodiest battle of the American Revolution. This was the Siege of Savannah in 1779. This was the most serious military confrontation in Georgia between the British and the Continental Army. The goal of the Americans was to liberate the city of Savannah from British occupation, which had lasted for a year. The American rebels and their French allies attacked on the night of October 8th. It started with a false attack to draw the attention of the British away from the real assault. The plan did not work. Miscommunication had one French line attacking before the rest were in place. The battle ended up in a ditch where a French flag and a South Carolina flag were planted. The rebels probably thought this would indicate some kind of victory, but it would be anything but victory. The British, in response, cut down the attackers and their colors. Their counterattack lasted for an hour and left 80 of the American and French troops dead in the ditch. More than a thousand men lost their life in what was considered the bloodiest hour of the war. The rebels retreated in defeat.
0: It was a great British victory. So one of the reasons why we like to dig all the way back into the history as far as we can go when it comes to locations is to find out this kind of stuff. Because most people will tell you that this house is haunted because of the people who lived in a house that was built there later, the Sorel Weed House. But keep in mind, this happened at this location. Men died here in a battle. The second bloodiest battle of the entire war. And the bloodiest hour of the entire war. So just keep that in mind when we talk about hauntings in the future here. Francis Sorel was born to Antoine-Francois Sorel de Rivieres, a French military officer and sugar plantation owner, and Eugénie de Soutre, a free woman of color in Haiti in 1793. And let me just say right now, because there are certain words that we don't use in our vernacular anymore that they did use historically. We don't use the term mulatto anymore. It's considered derogatory. Mainly that came from the fact that a lot of racists used it in a racist way. If you go back into the entomology of the word, it really is an appropriate word to say that you have a mixing here, but racist people managed to make it something negative. We are going to use this word a couple of times in this episode. We are not saying it to offend anybody. It's just to make the point that this is the way that these people refer to themselves. So at this time in history, Eugenie would have been referred to as a mulatto. And this was a term to distinguish between free people of color who had white fathers versus black slaves, especially in Haiti, because you had these two different groups there. You had the slaves who were working out in the fields and stuff, and then you had these people of color who had white fathers because they had money and that kind of thing. It gave them more of a name and kind of held them a little bit loftier than the black slaves, although they weren't a part of regular society either because they still had that color in there. So they couldn't fall along those lines. Francis was only six months old when his mother died. The slave rebellion was already well underway at this time, and Antoine felt it was too dangerous, and he left the island. He also left Francis. Eugenie's family would raise him, and he would never see his father again. Francis did well for himself and was invited by Richard Henry Douglas to enter into a partnership. The Douglas Sorel firm opened an office in Savannah, and Francis traveled there to run the business. Listeners may be asking themselves right now, how is it that Francis was able to do this since he was considered mulatto at that time because his mother was mulatto? He hid the fact that his mother was a woman of color and he was fair-skinned. The way they would say this back in that day is he could pass. So that's how they would put that. Instead of saying somebody was white or fair-skinned that had some mixing in their heritage, they would say he could pass. So he was that light-skinned that he could pass and he never told anybody about his mother. He married Lucinda Moxley in 1822. She was the daughter of a wealthy plantation owner. And as far as I know, he did some business with the Douglas Sorrell firm. So that's how Francis was able to meet this woman. And he had eyes on the fortune she would inherit as the eldest daughter because as a woman, her inheritance would pass on to her husband. So the Moxley family had two daughters. So neither one of them were going to be able to inherit this plantation that their father owned, but their husbands would be able to inherit it.
1: The couple had three children together, and after the third was born, Lucinda came down with yellow fever. She died from the disease in 1827, destroying Francis' dream of a large inheritance. He was doing well on his own, as he had started his own shipping business, but he still liked that Moxley money. So he did what any man with such a goal would do. He married his dead wife's younger sister, Matilda. Matilda and Francis had eight children together, one of who was Gilbert Moxley Sorrell. Gilbert went by the name Moxley to honor his mother, and he became a brigadier general in the Confederate Army. He helped in the capture of Fort Pulaski. We know that place. Yes. In fact, just kind of a fun fact is Fort Pulaski is where I got my National Park collector's book where I go get all my stamps in. And so that's where you got your
0: first stamp, really, at least in that book. Yes, in that book.
1: He commanded Sorrell's brigade and took part in nearly every major Civil War battle, including Gettysburg. After the war, he became an executive for the Ocean Steamship Company and took a place on the Georgia Historical Society board. He wrote a book, Recollections of a Confederate Staff Officer, about his experiences during the war, which has been consulted by many movie producers when making movies about the war, because Moxley wrote about the personal side of many historical figures. The house has a later edition of the book that contains pictures, and Miss Diane actually got to look through it and found it very interesting to see some of the personal comments Moxley had made. Several of them were not very nice. Three of Frances' and Matilda's children died before reaching adulthood. They raised their five other children and Lucinda's three children together.
0: So they had a lot of them in this house, and it's not very big. I took the tour, and it was over an hour. I dashed in there because they start the tours at 10 o'clock in the morning and I got there about five after and I'm like, oh, crud, am I going to have to wait till 11 for the next tour? So I went into the carriage house and I said, are you guys doing tours today? Because there was a couple of young people sitting there and they said, yeah. And I said, well, when's your next one? And the young guy that was sitting there, and I cannot remember his name. I feel really bad because he was my guide. And he said, "Uh, I could take you right now if you like. And I was like, by myself? And he said, sure. And I was like, awesome. So I got a private tour of the Sorrel Wheat House. And it definitely, I think it went over 60 minutes. He was telling me all kinds of great stuff. And he was very excited about it. He's been part of the excavations there, loves history. So it was just really great to talk to him. And it was really cool to get to look at this book that obviously it wasn't the original first edition, but it was pretty darn close it was kind of cool to hear that there were all these different movies that have used that as kind of a way to look back and, and get an accurate look of people because he didn't hold back. If he didn't like somebody thought they were an egotistical person or something. So there were some people who didn't like him very much after this. It was kind of like he wrote a, a tell all book about everybody's and uh, definitely the movie Gettysburg did use stuff from that book. And actually there is uh, Moxley's character is in that movie as well. That's super cool. The Sorrel Weed House was designed and built by renowned Irish architect Charles B. Cluskey in 1841 for Francis Sorrel. Construction began in 1836. There are three distinct architectural styles represented by the house. The main one is Greek Revival with a Haitian style represented in the shuttered balcony found on part of the house and in the orange coloring of the mansion. It's probably one of the main things you'll notice about this mansion if you get a chance to visit it in Savannah is it is not colored like anything else around it. French Regency styling is mostly seen inside the home. Kleski hated adding the Haitian elements, but Sorel insisted, so the architect put the balconies away from the front of the house where they would not interrupt his Greek revival elements. These elements include a parapet with elliptical arches, Doric columns on the portico, a sweeping double entrance, and balconies on the first-story front windows. So you can imagine this guy absolutely loves Greek Revival. That is his style. And then you have this man who says, "Well, I want to put these gaudy, weird-looking kind of balconies because when I say shuttered, I'm not talking about shutters that you're thinking maybe running the length or what have you. Imagine a half wall around this balcony. So you got a half railing, but the railing is—it's like shutters, kind of. Is the best way that I can describe it. So it does not match with Greek Revival at all. It, it doesn't match with anything." Because, as I said, we we see balconies there all the time that are made out of all this wrought iron and stuff. And so to have these wooden shuttered kind of elements was very weird. And so Klusky did not want to do it. But obviously, this is his client. This is what he wants. So he did his best with trying to kind of hide it where people wouldn't necessarily see it.
1: Well, maybe we could call it eclectic instead of weird.
0: Okay, we'll do that. (laughs) The front foyer has a common piece of architecture found in Savannah Mansions and that is a division of space in the foyer. And it's indicated by two little columns. So they're not really big columns. They don't even go all the way to the ceiling. They're kind of halfway up the room. So they're, they're kind of weird because you walk in the front door and uh, about three or four feet in and then you got these two columns to each side. And you're like, what is that? And they said, you know, when they first were looking at it, when they were looking at parts of the house and stuff, they were like, well, these are weird. Were these like something that a later person put in as kind of a style element that doesn't belong? And then when they looked back over the architecture of the time, they went, no, these really were things that people put in their homes. It was kind of a don't go past this unless you've been invited to come past this. So it kind of differentiated between the guest space and the private family space. And then there's this this hallway that goes all the way to the other end of the house. And then there's rooms that come off of it that we'll talk about in a minute there's a stairway that's across from the foyer that's over on the other end of the house here, and it's Regency in style. So basically, you have this center stairway, it ascends to a mid-floor stoop, and then you have stairways that go off to the left and right, so you could climb up either to the right or to the left. And I don't think that they had specific designations of who could go up which side, because as many of our historians and those of you who know a lot about some of these older antebellum homes back in the Victorian era, when you look outside... It's the, the case here at the Sorel Weed House. They have stairs that go up each side as you're coming up to the front door. And as we know, Denise, that was so that men would not see women's ankles. So the woman would go up one side, the man would go up the other. They wouldn't see their ankles, and then we wouldn't have any issues with, oh, you saw something you shouldn't have seen. So I'm not sure if that's why these stairs were done that way or if it was just a style type thing.
1: The most interesting room inside the mansion is an oval-shaped dining room with curved wooden doors. The doors are very unique and took several weeks to make as they were formed using water rather than the typical techniques of just hollowing out a tree and using the natural curve of the tree for the doors. We notice that the interior of one of the doors did not have a handle and the reason for that is rather chilling in how it relates to slavery. With a home like the Sorrells where there were more than a dozen slaves serving the family of mostly children, it would be very easy for the slaves to overpower the master. So slave masters would use some practices to instill fear in their slaves. One of these was making it forbidden for a slave to get caught in a room with no way out. A slave would have to enter the dining room through these doors and move fast enough to put down whatever he had on the table or make his way in and out of the butler closet before the door he came through closed or he would be trapped as there was no door handle. He would then face a reprimand or beating for his infraction.
0: And for these rooms that we're going to be talking about, I took a lot of pictures while I was inside the house and the carriage house. I wasn't able to take any video, but we are going to make a video for our executive producers that will be uh, a companion to this so that you can see what all of these things that we're describing look like. And what's interesting is the butler's closet is over on the other side of the room and has the curved doors there too, only there's handles on it. So it's very obvious when you look at these two sets of curved doors that one has handles and the other does not. That was one of the things I was like, well, how do you get out that door? How would you open it? So there's only one way in and out, and you had to make sure that those doors didn't close. I always wondered sometimes why if you had a home like this, the slaves wouldn't be like, well, there's two adults. We can take them.
1: Yeah, part of the problem would that be too with the society in which that institution was living in as they wouldn't get very far and so that's true You'd you'd be in some major trouble yeah what we what we did to a whole group of people was just horrible
0: there were two rooms on the first floor with doors that separated them to serve as parlors for the men and women the rooms would be open to each other when they would have large dinner parties so out in the square sometimes there would be people out there hanging out and the Sorrells would be like, Hey, let's have a dinner party. And they would just tell everybody outside, Come on in. Well, there's a lot of furniture in these parlors, and this is the best place to set up tables. And it's not like they have the kind of tables that we have nowadays when you just want to throw up a little folding table. No, these are big tables that they somehow had to get into that room. So the slaves would have to come in and move all of this heavy furniture. So they'd have to take the heavy furniture out of the parlors and then bring in these heavy tables. And you could just stick the furniture out in the hallway they would have to take it all the way down into the basement so i can't imagine how much work this was because obviously the furniture of that time was not light the basement is large and open and was where multiple kitchens were located there are four fireplaces that are down there and one of the kitchens they believe was specifically for the slaves and where their food was prepared One of the interesting, I guess, if you want to call it a fun fact, that I learned while I was doing this that I didn't really think about at the time. For those of you who've watched Downton Abbey, you know there was a downstairs and an upstairs. Well, it was the same thing in a slave home at this time. If you were in the city and you had slaves that were basically in your home and they would need to eat. Now, they could eat over where they were kept, which we'll be talking about in a little bit, would be the carriage house. But they also had an area downstairs where they could eat. And that was the case in a lot of these mansions at the time they couldn't eat the same food that the people were eating upstairs because they were eating the finest food around. You had your caviar and all of your expensive stuff, the kind of food that you and I, Denise, do not even like.
1: I don't know. When you start saying, I'm like,
0: ugh. I know. All those fancy sauces and stuff, I'm like, yuck. And usually they just make me sick because I can't eat all that heavy stuff. It's just too much. So what the slaves would eat is what would have been called slave food. And that is what is considered typical Southern comfort food today. So your black eyed peas, your collard greens, your fried okra, all that stuff that you love, Denise, that your mom (laughs) from Tennessee got you into. Yep. Add some
1: cornbread and I'm right here. I'm like eating dinner. Yum. I love that stuff.
0: That is slave food. So we don't call it that today. And most people don't even know that today so after the civil war you have these rich southern families they've lost nearly everything because of the war well they can no longer afford this expensive upper crust food so now the slave food that was being served downstairs to the slaves comes upstairs to the rich dining rooms and that eventually became the mainstay food of the south because then everybody was eating that same food
1: what I'm looking at is that the slaves ha- actually had a lot better taste than their owners because
0: I mean, who doesn't want some fried chicken? Yeah. <laughs> you
1: know? Yeah, I love I love the southern Southern cooking, but I had no idea until we did this episode that it actually came from the people who were kept captive by those families. So
0: I didn't know either until my tour guide said, "I don't know that many people know this, but he goes a lot of the food that people come here to eat was considered at one time slave food and Beneath people to eat that kind of stuff. It's not beneath
1: me. Nope. One of the rooms in the basement would eventually serve as a doctor's office for Francis Sorrell Jr. And he would work on wounded soldiers during the Civil War here. That means multiple amputations took place in this room. This room is made famous by legends of it being used as a room for conducting voodoo. The first time that we actually saw this room was on a ghost tour that we took several years ago, the one Diane mentioned. And there was a night vision camera that was hooked up in it. And a couple of people in our group, they were a young couple, were invited to enter and dance around. And there were some like weird lights and orbs kind of zipping past them. But these easily could have been dust or bugs. So we weren't really looking at that. But then they're just dancing, giggling and having fun. Then all of a sudden the girl just stopped dancing And the tour guide was like, Are you okay? And she's like, No, I'm not. I need to get out of here. I don't feel well. And so she was like, Not having any more of that room. She wanted out of there as quickly as they could get her. And so that was really interesting to watch because we were watching
0: her on TV. What was interesting about it is just her reaction was so different than when they went in and they were like giggling and felt kind of stupid. You know how people feel when you know you're on camera and they're like, they told them, oh, kind of dance around and stuff. So they're just like dah, 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 and laughing and giggling. And then all of a sudden she just stopped and was like, I want to get out of here. I need to get out of here.
1: Yeah. So it was, it was like, wow, was that was definitely a intense night and reaction.
0: day. Night and day, like a switch had gone off. Just a note here. We did not tempt the spirits. No, uh, they invited everybody to go into that room if they wanted to. And uh, we were like, maybe not if voodoo was done in there. We won't we won't tempt that kind of spirit.
1: Well, anyway, on Diane's recent visit to Savannah, this room was wide open and decorated like an office with a medical table and instruments. When she was there, she said it felt just like any other room to her. A dumbwaiter had been used to transport food from the kitchen upstairs to an area right outside the dining room, but that no longer exists.
0: No, so that was over on the other side of this basement, and it was really hard to get a feel for what the basement must have been like, because we're going to talk about future things that have happened with the house, but it was just a huge, wide-open area, and they do have these two rooms that were a couple of the kitchens that they have kind of separated with some walls. And it just was a very different feel, Denise, because when we went that night, it was dark and they're telling ghost stories. So you just get this creepy vibe. And so it felt creepy being down there. And when they were talking about the voodoo and everything. It felt creepy. Well, when I went there this time, it was like wide open. It was really cool. I'm looking at all the medical instruments and going, oh my God, how in the world did people let them touch them with this stuff? Especially since you were just a few weeks out from your last surgery. (laughs) Yeah. So it was like, you know, (laughs) that was archaic enough. I don't need to go back to that time period. That I just can't even imagine. And I was like, wow, how night and day. I would have never guessed that this was the same room that had everybody freaked out that night that we wouldn't even go into. As a point here that we said that there's a lot of legends about this house, there is nothing to indicate that voodoo was ever practiced anywhere in this home, down in the basement, anywhere that the slaves ever did it. Now, of course, we know that some of them that was their religious practice. But there was nothing like, they weren't doing ceremonies down here and cursing the family or what have you. There's nothing to indicate any of that. So I believe that that's just a part of the legend that they like to push on some of these ghost tours that really has no bearing in anything that we would call truth.
1: Of course, you can see where that might come from, because if I was basically owned by a family, depending on how they treated me, and that was my, my religious practice, I would want to throw a curse or two.
0: One of the other cool things is when we were in this room, he had this case and he showed me that there were two sets of two different kinds of bullets in it. And they were bullets from the Revolutionary War and bullets from the Civil War. And they were very, very different. They were, I think it was balls for the Civil War. And it was these bullets that looked like bullets, you know, with a little point on the end of them for the Revolutionary War, I think is how it went. Or it was the other way around. I can't remember. But these were bullets that they actually excavated from the house. It's believed that there were some soldiers specifically Revolutionary War soldiers from that Siege of Savannah that may have been buried under the house. Oh, wow. Because they don't know how else the bullets would have been there. Maybe as a part of the fighting the bullets were just there, but they think there were some bodies connected to some of these. Yeah, that
1: makes sense. Now the Civil War ones would probably be by them doing the surgeries there, but the Revolutionary was long before.
0: Another room that's on the first floor is what was probably Francis Sorrell's office. There are large windows around this room that lead out to the Haitian balconies. As many of you probably know, there was a time in history where houses were taxed according to the number of doors. Francis beat paying taxes on his quote-unquote doors leading to the balcony by making them windows. They stretch nearly to the floor. And it was so interesting because I walked in here and I went, these are some of the biggest windows I've ever seen. Because they were as big as doors and they were they were two tiered. So it was like as if you would go over to your window and, you know, you push the one up and it usually has a screen for it. And then you have the other part of the window that doesn't move. Well, these are the exact same way. The way it works is there's a hidden pocket in the wall as you would push the window up. The window would push up into the wall because you would look and you'd be like, okay, the bottom pane that moves is way bigger than the second pane if you were to push it up, if it just went as high as the second pane of windows, there was no way you wouldn't be able to open it all the way. So he showed me, look, there's a pocket here. And all of a sudden part of the window just disappeared into the wall. And of course it pushed up high enough that a person could walk right through. So you wouldn't have to bend down or anything. You could just walk right out as if it was a sliding glass door. It just slid up rather than to the side, like how we have them today. Those
1: are called wind doors. No, just kidding.
0: (laughs) Well, I got to test it out and I got to go out on the balcony. And when I did this, I got to see a closer look at the orange paint that's on the outside of the house. And when I say orange, I don't mean orange like a pumpkin. It's more of a kind of a coral orange kind of color with a little bit of rust thrown in. It's really hard to describe. It's not like orange, orange, but it's definitely kind of an orangish tone to it. When it was originally restored, the historic Savannah Foundation did not want the owner who was restoring it at the time to use the color. They claimed that it was not a historic color in Savannah. Apparently, they forgot that there's a Haitian influence styling to this house. When the city said no, the guy who was restoring it went over and scraped off 20 layers of paint and he found the original paint, which was indeed orange. So the color stayed. The historic Savannah Foundation still was not crazy about the color, so they asked him to please tone it down, and he did. So it's not the exact color that it had been before, and it is toned down, so it matches a little bit better with the way Savannah is today. We've never been to the second floor where the bedrooms are located, so we can't tell you what those look like. They have not had a chance to restore any of that. Hopefully someday they get to it and we will be able to see those in the
1: future. Well, I still want to go back and see because the last time I was in the Sorel Weed House, the basement part where the voodoo room and everything was, was being highly renovated. So it was not at all what you described on this visit.
0: No, and the places that are supposed to be the other kitchens have tables in them and they're set up as if they would be a working kitchen today.
1: I just remember having to be careful because there was so much construction, they didn't want anybody to get hurt. Exactly. There is a carriage house next to the house and it was in the upper area where the slaves were housed. Up to 15 of them shared a large open area with a small kitchen and fireplace. This would have been very crowded. Diane did ask her guide about the smell of horses coming up from the downstairs area where the carriages were stored and that's when she learned that the horses were kept in stables outside of the town. There was a separate room off the large room that had its own furnishings and a door, and this was Molly's room, since so she was considered a level above the slaves. She was a type of middle management and had been given this position because of how well she cared for the Sorel children as a nanny. There's no official record of Molly, but the legends around her claim that she was mulatto. Many of the slaves in the Sorel household were listed as mulatto, and it is generally understood that Francis had no problem helping himself to the bodies of his female slaves, and it is thought that he fathered a few children with them.
0: When you dig into the family trust for the Sorel family, it gets very murky, and it is very hard to figure out exactly what's going on here. But let me just say that Francis had some younger slaves that were listed as mulatto that he put in the family trust. And the way he put them in the family trust was not as in these are property that get passed on to my kids. It was almost providing for them, which is why people have been led to believe that maybe these were his children. That's an interesting thing there as well. And I cannot remember, but one of his children that he had with, I believe it was Matilda, actually went around town claiming that he was mulatto. So I don't know if he found out his father's secret. I'm not exactly sure what all we have going on there, or maybe it was one of the slaves. I don't know. But that was another story that I was told. There's no definitive proof that this went on, but we know. Obviously that it happened a lot back then and some of it was consensual. A lot of it wasn't. Uh, You know, you have a mastery comes in and you might get better treatment. Molly, possibly this is why she was getting better treatment and got to have her own separate room because when we went up into this upper area that was above this carriage house, it was not big. If all of these people were laying on the floor next to each other, the entire floor would have been covered and there'd be nowhere you could walk. It was not what I would say would be big enough for 15 people to be living in. And they had some renditions of bunk-type beds, but they said that's just what they've put in there. They have no idea how it was set up and if there were these kinds of bunk beds there or not. He said they more than likely probably just had to sleep on the floor.
1: I was just thinking about, you know, you talking about whether it was consensual or not and sometimes better treatment, and it's really sad that in this time, And today's time, which we're seeing in Hollywood right now, we're at that time, but also just some of the people trying to come over from third world countries and how men, I don't even have a word that I could use for them on the podcast, but how they use their terror and their their fear in wanting to get out of a bad situation that they make them do things that of a sexual nature just to try to get a better part of their life. I think all those men should be castrated.
0: You said we're seeing it today as well. You put a man in power and they can wield it to do all kinds of things. And back in that day, of course, as a a woman, you certainly wouldn't tell anybody because what was what were they going to do for you? I don't think they they didn't care. So you could say, well, my master has been raping me. Oh, well. And there was also some people don't think about there were masters who would force the male slaves to rape the female slaves because they wanted to get more babies. Let's get some more workforce here. So, you know, go on in there and get her pregnant. So there was a lot of that going on as well, yeah. and, and some, then, like we said, like you said, in, in Hollywood we see it, uh, politics we see it, all over the place. I mean, this this goes back probably to the beginning of time.
1: <laughs> but does what's that old adage that the two largest corruptors are money and power?
0: The area below the carriage house was recently excavated, and my guide took part in some of that excavation. They believe that a large wine cellar had once been in this area and it stretches the whole length of the carriage house, so this would have been a large wine cellar. They found a case down there with several brandy bottles inside of it and something quite remarkable and surprising was inside the case as well. A letter from Robert E. Lee was found. They were befuddled. They had no idea why this would be in there. The guide said that General Lee had visited the home a few times. They're not sure how this had ended up in the case or why. So they're not sure if he would have put it in the case and then they put the case down there and how it managed to survive all this time. It's been taken over to the historical society so that they can, I think they need to do some work with it to try to restore the letter and make it so that it doesn't get damaged any further. So it'll be interesting. I hope that they put out some more information about it because I don't know exactly what the contents of that letter were or just a a letter home. I'm not sure, but I'd, I'd be fascinated to know more about it. Next to the Sorrell Weed House is a large house that once served as the guest house for the Sorrells. Their house was full. They got eight kids and the two adults. If anybody came to stay, they didn't have anywhere to put them. So they built this other house next door. It's not very pretty. It kind of looks like an apartment building, really doesn't have a lot of distinctness to it. It's now a private residence. But the family, the Sorrell family, had lived there for a time when their finances took a nosedive. And two original mirrors, one is in the women's parlor and the other is in the men's parlor, were found over in this guest house. All of the furnishings that are in the house are from that time period, but none of them are original except for those two mirrors. So you can imagine when they went next door, I don't know if the people who live there said, hey, we found these up in our attic. Do you want them? They were ecstatic to find that they had a couple of pieces of original furniture for the house. And it was these two mirrors. And they're really very cool. So they, they brought those over. They are trying to restore a lot of the inside of the house to some of the original colors that it would have been. Unfortunately, when this was turned into apartments, people painted over, they had gold leafing around all of the windows and there's only one room that still has the gold leafing on it. Otherwise it was painted over in the other rooms and if anybody knows anything about paint and restoring usually you can take paint off of stuff but you can't take it off of gold leafing like this or it takes the gold right off. So there's nothing they can do to restore that gold leafing back. That's so sad. There's also, for people who get to see the video, there are these magnificent, I don't even know what they call them technically, but it's what the chandeliers are hanging from that are inlaid into the ceiling. They are carved wood, just gorgeous and amazing. They're trying to get those restored back to more of an original feel. Everything in the house is just great. There's another place that's in that hallway that I talked about right near the staircase. It has like this, paneling that's painted on the wall and the reason why they would paint the paneling on the wall was not because it was cheaper than paneling the wall it was actually more expensive and you had to have an artist come in to do it so it showed that you had more money if you were painting this decor on the walls so this reminds us Denise of houses that we've been in where they've put like leaves on the walls or all different kinds of decorations that they've painted on the wall it's not just one color that it's actually a design because it was much more expensive to have those designs The Sorrell Wheat House was designated a state landmark in 1953. It was the first house in Georgia to receive that kind of honor. And as I said earlier, they have day tours. They're about 60 minutes long. They cost $10, so they're very reasonable. They start at 10 a.m. and I believe they run to either 4 or 5 p.m. And then they have evening ghost tours that are offered as well. You go to the carriage house to get your tickets. You also, if you are private investigators, you can rent it overnight. And they do have overnight investigations that they host as well. They supply all the equipment and stuff.
1: Matilda Sorrell was not a happy woman. She was given to bouts of depression, and one can imagine that her relationship with Frances was not necessarily based on love, but rather a position in society. The woman's parlor where she spent most of her time reading has windows that look out on the carriage house. The legend that surrounds the house claims that one day Matilda looked out of those windows and could see into the room that was Molly's, and she saw a vision that shocked her to her core and fed her depression. Frances was having sex with Molly. The distraught Matilda climbed the stairs to the third floor of the guest house next door and threw herself out of the window, head first, onto the brick patio below. Now, there is no proof that this is what caused Matilda to take her life. It could have been mental illness, or perhaps she even discovered the truth about Francis being a man not of pure white ancestry. But whatever the case, Matilda did indeed kill herself on the property. A family friend wrote his mother of the event. The sad news has reached the office that Mrs. Sorrell, probably in a fit of lunacy, sprang from the second or third story window of her residence on Harris Street, next door to the house, which was the family mansion for many years falling upon the pavement of the yard and by the concussion terminating her life. This happened in 1860. There are claims that Matilda made this jump from the mansion itself. This is difficult to ascertain. Francis did sell his mansion in 1859 to a man named Henry Weed, but there are claims that Francis was in the mansion in 1862 when Robert E. Lee visited.
0: So this is where you have legend and some murky stuff here. Any tour that you take will tell you that Matilda threw herself from the top floor of the mansion. The problem is, according to this, the family was not in the house anymore because they had already sold it. And according to this letter, which was written at that time, he clearly says that she was over next door at the other residence that they had. So this was the first time as I was doing this research, I was like, wait a minute, I've never heard that she threw herself off of the guest house. But this letter to me, I would believe that because that was at the time. Now, of course, I don't know, maybe he got some gossip or anything, but why would people say that she threw herself from the guest house if they were living in the family mansion? Now, the other thing that makes this murky is the reason why they think that Frances was living in the house when Robert E. Lee visited is because there is a plaque that is found in the city that makes this claim, and I think it dates back pretty far. So we're not sure exactly where she threw herself from, We also, as we said, don't know why she did it, but Matilda did kill herself either right here on the property of the Sorrell Weed House or next door. All of it was really considered the same property because they had owned both of them at one time until they sold to Henry Weed, which of course is where the weed part of the name comes in. And it's possible that they sold it to him and he said they could live in the house for a little bit longer. Some people do that, you know, say you can stay for another year or what have you. Not sure which... The carriage house now if it's true that she actually saw Francis having sex with a slave she would be able to see it from either one of these properties because they both would have looked out on the carriage house and the side of the carriage house that has this private room that was Molly's or whoever's is over on the side where the guest house is. So she could have seen it from either position. The legend went further when it came to Molly if that's who she is. Shortly after Matilda's death, Molly was found hanged in a room in the carriage house. There's no clear indication as to whether she committed suicide or was murdered. There's also no clear indication in historical fact that Molly existed or that a slave killed herself on the property. So, as far as we know, that whole thing is just a legend. Whether he was having sex with a slave in there or not, we don't know. But there's nothing to tell us that a slave killed herself here. Of course, if she was murdered, and even if she did kill herself, you want to put the kibosh on the fact that your wife has killed herself. And all these rumors are flying around about why she killed herself. Now, the letter indicates that her she had some form of lunacy. So it would seem to me that some people knew that she might have a little bit of mental illness, that she would get depressed and such. But maybe people were starting a rumor about, Oh, he's stepping out on her and that's why she did it. If you've got a dead slave here, probably don't want that to get out either. That could be why we don't have any kind of historical fact here. Maybe they just erased Molly from existence and that's why we don't see any paperwork that could be traced to somebody by that name. We just don't know. The house itself remained in the Weed family until 1914. A.J. Cohen Sr. bought the 15,000 square foot mansion from the Savannah Bank and Trust Company in 1941. So we're not exactly sure what happened between 1914 and 1941. I don't know if it was made into apartments at that time as well. It's at abandoned. His son, A.J. Cohen Jr., built a one-story brick building around the Bull Street side about five years later that reached out all the way to the street. He did this to create a storefront and open the first of three Lady Jane clothing shops. Cohen also knocked out most of the walls in the basement. That's why I told you it's basically a big open area where the store was located. Now, imagine knocking out all of the walls in your basement. Probably some of those walls are load-bearing, you think? Yeah. Some of these walls were load-bearing as well. So now the house is held up by they had to put these steel girders in because the house was starting to cave in into the basement because they're like, "Uh, you just took out all the support. My guide took me and showed me pictures of what this storefront looked like. It was the most bizarre thing on the planet, Denise. Imagine having this house sitting in what looked like the middle of a store because you would look, it it would look like a regular strip mall kind of entrance, but you could see a house behind it. (laughs) So it's like you have the strip mall front and it goes into the house and the house is rising for a couple more stories above that. It, it, It was just bizarre. I'm like, okay. Whatever, I guess they just wanted to use the basement for the store. So that was the best way to make it look like a store. I I don't know. Because, of course, now we know people use historic homes in these historic cities all the time to have a store, and you don't change the front to look like a store. I mean, people are like, I'm walking into a house, but it's a store now. Right. In the
1: 1960s, Cohen Jr. moved into the house with his family and continued to run the apparel business. The store started to do poorly in the 1980s and finally closed in 1991. The Cohens put the house on the market. Stephen C. Bader bought the house in 1996 and worked at renovating it for some time, but there was a lot of controversy surrounding his ownership. He had several workplace violations and scores of unpaid bills. His contractor and architect finally quit. A few of the positive things that he did were dismantling the storefront the Cohens built, and he is the one who took the house back to its original orange collar, which we, we already mentioned that he had toned down after the pressure from the city. Bader spent four years burning through money and workers before his tenure with the house ended. After that, we're not sure how ownership went, but Diane was told that there had been apartments here, so we imagine that was after Bader. The current owner seems to be the group that runs the tours now, but we don't know their official name. Um, the website, if you want to look it up, is sorrelweedhouse, all one word, dot com.
0: Even to find out the information that I did about this, I had to find some magazine articles, and there was one that just went on and on about this Bader guy. I mean, the f- neighbors were suing him, and it was, oh, what a nightmare it was having him take over the house, because he was, he was one of these guys who was a muckety-muck that thought he was more important than he really was, and he joined all of the prestigious groups and he acted like he had a lot of money but when it came right down to it they said he'd throw these lavish parties but then he wouldn't pay a plumber $900. I don't know if he was just spending his money in the wrong ways or if he was just in debt up to his eyeballs and he had no idea about construction. His contractors and architects would tell him we can't do this don't do that you can't dig down into the basement as far as you're going because you're going to sink the house and he would just do whatever the hell he wanted. The city would not give him permits for stuff and he would still just do whatever. Part of the reason why this house is in pretty bad shape is because of the stuff that he did to it. So while he did some good things trying to restore it, he did a lot of bad things too and they just don't have the money to try to take care of all of this. There are several spirits haunting the Sorrel Weed House and many claim that it is one of the most haunted houses in Savannah. Ghost Hunters was here in 2005 and Ghost Adventures visited in 2015 Both shows claim to catch EVPs. The ghost hunters think they got the cries of a slave on an EVP. The EVP seems to say, help, oh Francis, help, oh my God, oh my God. And Zach Baggins said of his time in the house, our investigation of the Sorrell Weed House in Savannah, Georgia gave me a three alarm hangover. It was very similar to a real one, headache, nausea, dizziness, throbbing, memory loss, but weirder. I can usually gauge how bad my hangover is going to be by the interactions I have with spirits during a lockdown, but this one threw me for a loop. So Denise, while you and I have had no problems in the house, apparently Zach Baggins had a lot.
1: Well, he tends to do a little bit of spirit tempting, if I do say so myself.
0: Or badgering, however you want (laughs) to put it.
1: Um, Diane had asked her guide if he'd experienced anything unexplained, and he said that he had never noticed anything that he would consider to be a haunting He has been alone in it at night and heard noises, but he always assumes that it's just the noises of a very old house. But others have definitely experienced weird activity. One of the people who lived in an apartment basement was named Steve, and he was there for three months. He felt very uneasy in what was later called the voodoo room. He moved upstairs and claimed to hear the sound of parties and other social gatherings coming from downstairs when clearly there was no one down there. When he would go downstairs to investigate, the sound of the music laughing and talking would stop.
0: The scent of residual cigar smoke has been smelled by guests touring the men's parlor. Residual noises from the Revolutionary War are heard inside and outside the house. And as we mentioned, they did find some of these Revolutionary War bullets there, and they're thinking that there might have been some people buried there. So when we're talking about hauntings here, While we don't have proof that there was actually this slave who'd hung herself, because a lot of people, of course, are going to say, well, Matilda and Molly are the ones who are haunting the house because they both died on the property. And we actually have no proof that anybody has ever seen women, ghosts or anything like that in this house. The hauntings that are happening possibly could go back to this war. And if you had people who were buried here, their graves have been disturbed. And we know that that usually does not go over well with spirits for some reason. Shadow figures are seen regularly, and people claim to have been groped, poked, and to have had stabbing pains. Which, to me, would kind of allude to the hospital. Stabbing pains? That could be. And, and one woman said that she'd gotten a stabbing pain in her kidney, and I said, well, maybe you are uh, got a stone. I, I know that kind of pain. <laughs> oh, Diane.
1: People who have toured or investigated the house claim to feel nauseous or a choking sensation when they are in the basement. A person named Jamie Stewart said, I visited this house recently as a skeptic. When I entered the home, I felt ill. Our tour guide wasn't great and didn't really tell us what had happened here until we got out to the courtyard. But yet I felt extremely ill and nearly vomited in the courtyard when we got out of the basement. It's not that I didn't believe in ghosts, but I was indifferent. This incident has left me to do research on it and I was freaked out by my reaction and the fact that I felt fine after I left the house. So it wasn't like, food poisoning or something
0: no and that's generally what we hear about the basement is that people get very nauseous down there don't feel well which makes me wonder if there's something about the electrical lines or something down in that basement that is causing maybe a physical manifestation that is not supernatural in nature camera and cell phone batteries are known to be completely drained while in the house David Duran wrote an article for Country Living about his experiences in Savannah and one segment was about a ghost tour he took at the Sorrel Weed house. He got an interesting picture in a mirror that seems to feature a person who was not part of their group who has hair and clothing from another time period. We do have that photo in the show notes and at first when I looked at it and he was like well there's a, a picture of somebody who doesn't belong here. I looked at it and I said well I don't see anybody who doesn't really belong there and he has several pictures that are in this article. But then when you look at it, I mean, it does kind of look like it's somebody who's standing away from the rest of the group. He seems much bigger or taller than everybody else. I mean, if you gauge his face with everybody else's, Denise, it it almost seems like his face is bigger. And then he has the picture kind of zoomed in a little bit. And to me, it looks like somebody who is wearing a white shirt with suspenders, which would make me think it's from a different time period because people don't usually dress that way now. Yep. So he's
1: either from way long ago or from like the 80s.
0: Yes, that could be. And I mean, the thing is, we have to believe this guy when he says this wasn't somebody who was a part of our group. Maybe it was and you just don't remember that person.
1: It is funny, though, in the other picture, he's not real clear either, but it could be because he's far away from the group because everybody else
0: appears to be a little bit clearer than him. I would agree. He looks a little bit more pixelated than them. And then a woman named Leslie took a weird picture in the house and said, I took this picture with my cell phone. We were at the Sorrell Wheat House on the ghost tour. I didn't really look at the picture until I downloaded it on my Facebook. I saw the blue streak at the bottom. and It looks like a man in a red uniform with a tan hat on, maybe a uniform. The man on the right is an actual person. The other is, well, I'm not sure you decide. And we also have that picture up in the show notes. And there's definitely a blue streak. And what caught my attention with this, Denise, is because you have actually taken a couple of pictures that have these blue streaks in them. And I believe one of them was in Savannah.
1: Yeah, I think in the graveyard. I think so.
0: That caught my attention because we've gotten a weird blue streak like that before. The thing that's always weird about these pictures, I'm assuming that the person that is an actual person must have been moving because they're very, very blurry. But the next to them is definitely a reddish color. And I don't know why this reddish color would be there. Because the man is looking at some of these mirrors that we've been telling you about that are original to the house. And they're right above these fireplaces. And there is, I mean, the fireplaces are wooden or black. There's nothing that would have been throwing this red color in just that one area. To me, it does kind of look like something is trying to manifest in that picture. But it's so blurry or not clear that it to me would not be something that's doctored you know when people doctor a picture they make it look more like something like this would have really looked like a soldier standing there this one it just looks like kind of a a red glob and maybe i kind of see the hat and causing a shadow over his face and of course if we're talking revolutionary war red coats i don't know if that's what we got going on here this is the first floor possibly it would be somebody who would have been on that level not sure So you guys look and see what you think. The legend
1: of the Sorrel Weed House seems to be just that, a legend. And yet there are many people who have experienced something they can't explain inside this home. Paranormal investigators claim to have caught a lot of evidence, but we ourselves have felt perfectly fine in the mansion. Is the Sorrel Weed House haunted? That is for you to decide.
0: Well, I don't have to say, wow, this is a place I would love to visit because we have. Yep, and we'll be going back. I would love to do a ghost tour there again. And maybe even with the equipment might be kind of (laughs) interesting.
1: So anybody going to take her up on that? I'm not.
0: (laughs) Well, we know we love Savannah. We will definitely be back there again. The really cool thing is now because of Denise's position and the fact that she's taking care of the school up there, she has to run up there almost every three months. Yes. So we're suffering. So yeah. So I'm like, oh, darn, I might have to ride along every single time and check out some more things. As I said, I took a lot of videos while I'm there, so those will be coming out as videos for our executive producers in the future. And the very next video that we're going to do will feature the interior of the Sorrel Wheat House so you guys can see what all of these rooms look like and the mirrors and all that good stuff. And I'll throw these uh, ghost pictures that these people took in that video as well. I want to encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people have some feedback, where can they send that to us? They can send that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We do want to announce we had our competition for our 2018 exclusive design. We had three people enter, Rhonda Borgen, Matt Hazley, and Dina Marie from over at the Twisted Philly podcast, all sent in their entries,
1: which were all absolutely amazing and made my job very, 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 very difficult.
0: And we were going to announce the winner earlier, but we got kind of sidetracked with sickness and busyness and all this other stuff. But we did have a winner, and it was Dina Marie of the Twisted Philly podcast. So starting in February, you will be able to get her design on mugs, shirts, whatever you like. We'll have that up in our History Goes Bump Emporium, which you can find over at historyghostbump.com. Just click on the HGB Emporium tab. It'll take you right over there and you can see her design. And we're also working on something with Rhonda Borgen's design. Some people indicated that they would like to see that on a tote bag, so that will be coming to our Emporium as well. Thank you to all of you guys for sending in your entries. We really appreciated you guys doing that. Such great, talented people out there in our listenership. Yes, they are. Next week, we're going to be speaking at our first ever podcast convention, PodFest here in Orlando. We're going to be part of a history panel. We're both excited and nervous about it. And then we're going to be speaking at another podcast convention in August at the Potter and Love Convention. We know you listeners love podcasts, and obviously we do too. Potter and Love is a podcast convention created by podcast listeners for podcast listeners. Join us on August 10th, 11th, and 12th here in 2018 in one of the coolest and most haunted cities in the country, New Orleans, Louisiana. There you'll get a chance to meet some of your favorite indie podcast hosts from shows like Twisted Philly, Pleasing Terrors, Hillbilly Horror Stories, The Unwritable Rant, Book vs. Movie, Generation Y, The Sofa Kings Podcast, and many more. There'll be live shows, panel discussions, Q&As, and workshops with podcasts from every genre. History Goes Bump is a featured podcast and we'll be on a paranormal panel moderated by Mike Brown of Pleasing Terrors. And you know we'll be doing some creepy after-hour stuff like a vampire tour. For more information about Potter and Love, go to the website www.pattern.love for a full list of featured podcasts, ticket prices, hotel accommodations, and more. And if you use our special code, Bump, B-U-M-P, you'll get 10% off your ticket price. We'd love to see you at Potter and Love. We have a couple of reviews to share from over on Apple Podcasts not something nice. Love it. Five stars. I love the haunted twist on history. It's interesting, exciting, and educational. Thank you for that. And Herbivore Holly. Love this podcast. Five stars, the paranormal plus history. I love it. Each show is well organized and detailed. It's great to hear info on places I've never heard of. Adding more ideas to the bucket list. I want to thank you for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producer, and I hope I say this right, Dr. Ogre von Thwappenstein, Esquire. Thanks. Sweet dreams.